This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button question stops here. Plug the radio in. everyone. Once again, it's time for Evidence for Faith, the weekly program that helps Christians become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. This is the program that presents the historical, archaeological, and scholarly evidences for the historic Christian faith based on the documents of both the Old and New Testaments. I'm Kirk Hastings, and we have with us um, our co-host Keith Kendricks, who is an apologist with a master's degree in a Christian apologetics from Biola University. Hi, Keith. Hey, Kirk. How are you today? Good. Uh, we have an interesting show set up for today. Uh, we're going to be continuing to pursue the idea that we've been talking about the past couple of weeks uh, concerning a Christian, a Christian worldview. And today we're going to narrow that down a little bit as to exactly what a Christian worldview is and what it's based on. But first, I understand we have a couple of special features that we're going to do first. Um, Keith? Well, I just wanted to remind everybody that it is September 11th. Of course, yep. So we should talk about that. I understand you had a interesting sermon today. Yes, we did. Uh, I go to Linwood Community Church in Linwood, New Jersey, and uh, our uh, interim pastor today had a very interesting message on September 11th, he basically uh, dealt with the question of, did God cause 9-11, or did God allow 9-11? And it was very interesting the way he worked it out. Of course, his answer was that God didn't cause it. Uh, The men who flew the planes into the buildings caused it, but he allowed it for whatever reasons. And, of course, a lot of pain and suffering came out of that, but a lot of good came out of it, too. We saw a lot of uh, heroism and people, ordinary people stepping up to the bat and doing things that we probably would never have expected them to do. And that is the positive part of the message. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, when I think back to September 11th, for me, the big thing that I noticed is that people became, some people became interested in Islam. Islam for them was kind of a new thing. And I remember talking to some people who were suddenly interested in reading the Quran and just, you know, what is it about the Quran that would cause people to behave in this way? But then there was a kind of a opposite reaction, and that was the repulsion to all religion. And if you remember, there was the complaint about fundamentalism. Yes. And so these people were fundamentalists, and they were no different from other fundamentalists. And of course, they meant Christian fundamentalists, which is absolutely ridiculous, uh, an incredible charge. And I remember with several people pointing out that the difference is, is in what they are fundamental about. Right. One fundamental belief is that you ought to kill your enemies. And the other fundamental belief is that you ought to love your enemies. Gee, do you think there could be a difference there? 
That sounds pretty different to me. <laughs> and, and I really do think that a lot of what we saw later, it wasn't but a few years later that we began to see these books written by atheists claiming that they were basically taking the gloves off and they were no longer going to be nice to religious people. And I really believe that that's a lot of what stemmed from September 11th. They were afraid of all religions, and so they decided that they would, you know, kind of wage their own war against religion and begin to abuse Christians and attack Christianity uh, because they see it all together. You know, they can't distinguish between love your enemies and hate your enemies. Right. Yeah, I... uh I've read parts of the Koran, and uh, of course I'm pretty familiar with the Bible, too, and I, I can't think of two more dissimilar documents in the style and the tone and the things that they teach. Yeah, very different. It, it, it does serve, I think it is useful to read the Koran just to get a feel for what it's like. People will find that it's not anything like the Bible at all. But a lot of people think it is. They think all so-called holy books are the same, which is another broad generalization that really has no basis in fact. Right. Yeah, that's true. Okay. What else you got for us? Uh, I understand you have a, an article. Uh, you spoke to me before we went on the air about it. I didn't have a chance to print a copy of it out, but you said that uh, you found an interesting study on the Internet about uh, uh, kids that go to church versus kids that don't go to church. Yeah, this was a really interesting study. This was written about on BeliefNet, and it's dated August 27, 2011, so this is brand new. And it's referring to a study by Dr. Pat Fagan, where he analyzed, it was a meta-analysis, so it wasn't a direct research of his own. It was an analysis and review of previous research. So he looked at more than 100 social scientists who had done research in the past two decades. And the reason we're looking at at this is because next week is National Back to Church Sunday, September 18th. And I had a sound file ready, but we're not, looks like I'm getting, we're not going to be able to play that. We had some technical difficulties, so that's not going to appear today. But maybe we will do it next week when it is National Back to, to Church Sunday. Okay. But I thought that this study fit right into it because it talks about all the studies that have been done over the past 20 years. And it, it appears that churchgoers are much more likely to manifest high levels of satisfaction in marriage. It shows that religious belief and practice contribute substantially to moral criteria and sound moral judgment. I think we could all say we need a lot more of that today. It also shows that it protects against a host of social problems, including suicide, drug abuse, out-of-wedlock births, crime, and divorce. So what was really interesting is that some of these studies, this Dr. Fagan points out, have really changed over the past couple decades and have begun to focus on specific areas. So it looks They've looked at the relationship between church attendance and health, overcoming addictions, reducing crime, and reforming criminals. And church attendance plays a role in all these benefits. So another thing it showed is that sincere faith has, has a big effect on good grades and success at school. So for kids, it's very important that they attend church. 
Now, I don't. When you and I were going to school, when we were kids, our parents thought that the best way to raise children was to take them to church. So many times you had parents who were not particularly religious themselves made sure that their children went to church with them or went to Sunday school or went to youth group. And I know that's how I was raised and it made a big impact on my life. Turns out that the studies show that they were right, Hmm. that that is the best way to raise children. He says, for some time, a growing body of research has consistently indicated that the frequency of religious practice is directly and significantly correlated with academic outcomes and educational attainment. He says, uh, children's involvement in church activities are strong predictors of academic achievement. According to Diane Brown and Lawrence Gary in their article, Religious Socialization and Educational Attainment Among African Americans, an Empirical Assessment, published in 1991 in the Journal of Negro Education. So that was great news. So it's particularly beneficial to blacks and to the poor. Then Dr. Fagan goes on to say, those who become more religiously involved during their high school years increase their academic ranking. That finding was made by Glenn Elder and Rand Conger in their book, Children of the Land, Adversity and Success in Rural America, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2000. And in the same book, they looked at a study of Iowa families that discovered that youth who in eighth grade are religiously involved will have higher academic competence in the 12th grade. So fascinating correlation to education. Then it also, he also points out that frequent religious attendance tends to increase students' total years of schooling. So students who attended church weekly while growing up have significantly more years of total schooling by their early 30s than peers who did not attend church at all. Hmm. So a lot of good, good findings. Here's another study that's mentioned. William Jaynes, professor of education at California State University, Long Beach, found that, quote, very religious, unquote, high school adolescents from urban communities fared better academically than non-religious adolescents. So he says, spiritual and religious involvement affects educational outcomes more than income does. So that, and that's very key because, you know, a lot of on the left, a lot of their big issue is the financial. And the reason that poor people do poor, poorly educationally, is because they're financially poor. And so what we need to do is funny, funnel money to them. But this turns out that it's a much better effect if they go to church instead. Hmm. One analysis of 10th grade students found that for both black and white students, the impact of pro-social values was stronger than the effect of socioeconomic status on reading and math proficiency. 44% greater for white students and 51% greater for black students. That study also showed that holding religious values was associated with higher math scores for black students. I've got a signal from Josh that we do have that sound bite, but let me just finish out a couple more comments and then we'll get that sound bite on the National Back to Church Sunday. He says, again, continuing with this meta analysis of studies, church attendance powerfully reduces socially deviant activity. 
you know, read that. That's a social scientist talk as criminal behavior. Then it says another study that Dr. Fagan cites showed that students attending weekly religious services were less likely to use drugs or alcohol to engage in delinquent behavior, to get in trouble at school, or to have poor grades when compared to their peers who attended church less than monthly or not at all. And then he has this big long list of benefits for church attendance for adults and for children. So I will read that in a minute, but if Josh has got that soundbite now, if okay. I can, what I will try to do is there's a, this uh, video. You can catch this on YouTube. It's the National Back to Church Sunday, 918. So there's most of it is in the sound portion of the video, but there's a little bit that's written. So I don't know if Josh can leave my microphone on during that while he's playing it, but if he can, I will read those parts. He's and, nodding yes, so I guess you can give it a try. Okay. So let her rip then, Josh. Here's a few reasons why people don't go to church. I can't come to church until I get my life together. A place for how I got my life together. A place for new beginnings. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. Imperfect people welcome. All they care about is your money. They care about me, not about my money. People are priceless. Is there some kind of dress code? Yes, the code is wear some clothes. Come as you are. Church, it just makes me nervous. I was nervous at first, and then I felt right at home. Right where God wants you. I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe. But you can still belong. Doubts welcome. Church is for wimpy, girly men. You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't want me. If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't be worried. Forgiven. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist, a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. See, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. So please, come to my church. Where nobody's perfect. Where beginners are welcome. Where socks are optional. But grace is required. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And where it's okay to not be okay. Really? All right, Kirk. Okay, socks are optional, huh? Yes, apparently it is. I didn't know that myself. But, uh, <laughs> but now I can go without socks. Okay, it's nice to know that we have the freedom to do that if we want. <laughs> so that is National Back to Church Sunday. Next Sunday, so I hope people who are listening who are not attending a church on a regular basis will decide to attend and feel welcome to attend your local church. Let me give you that last list that we were talking about. Here is specifically, it says, the available data clearly indicates that religious belief and practice are associated with the following list of benefits. Higher levels of marital happiness and stability. 
stronger parent-child relationships, greater educational aspirations and attainment, especially among the poor, higher levels of good work habits, greater longevity and physical health, higher levels of well-being and happiness, higher recovery rates from addictions to alcohol or drugs, higher levels of self-control, self-esteem, and coping skills, higher rates of charitable donations and volunteering, higher levels of community cohesion and social support for those in need, lower divorce rates, less abuse of alcohol and drugs, lower rates of suicide, depression, and suicide ideation, lower levels of many infectious diseases, less juvenile crime, less violent crime, and less domestic violence. So if you are wanting some of those benefits, now you know how to find it. Regular church attendance and belief in Christianity. There's a quote he has then. He says, No other dimension of life in America does more to promote the well-being and soundness of the nation's civil society than citizens' regular attendance at church. He says, as George Washington asserted, he concluded, he concludes, the success of the republic depends on the practice of religion by its citizens. These findings from the 21st century social science support his observation. Hmm. So they knew it a long time, but they, a long time ago, and but now we have the solid scientific experimentation to show that it is really true. How about that? Very interesting. Well, if you happen to be just joining us, uh, this is the Evidence for Faith radio program, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And if you'd like to listen to podcasts of our previous programs, feel free to go to our website, which is at www.evidencethenumber4faith.com. And you can also email us comments or questions at that website. Uh, the email address is email at evidence, the number four, faith.com. So feel free to take advantage of those opportunities. So uh, I guess we can move on to our topic for the day, which is kind of a continuance of what we've been talking about in the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about worldviews. And then uh, last week we spoke a little bit about a Christian worldview, and now today we are going to focus uh, a bit more on exactly what that means, what a Christian worldview is and what it's made up of. That's right, and for those who are planning to go to church for maybe the first time or for many years, we'll actually be reviewing some of the foundational beliefs of Christianity in the realm of theology, and then that lays a groundwork, a foundation upon which other ideas of the Christian worldview are built, ideas that have to do with politics, economics, education, those kinds of things. Right. But at least to start out, we'll focus on theology. Now, this may be a repeat for those who are Christians and regular attenders to church, so this will be a little bit of a repeat, but I think it's important that we lay this groundwork first because the whole concept of a worldview is that you build the ideas upon your basic views of things like, does God exist? What is man? Uh, what is the purpose of life? So if you answer those one way, you get a certain worldview. If you answer them a different way, you get a completely different worldview. Right. Well, how about we start out with some of the foundational beliefs of Christianity? 
Okay. So, so again, some of this is going to be kind of obvious, but for Christians, I guess what we'll do is we'll, I'll, I'll kind of outline them, and then we'll go and look at them in depth more closely. Okay. So Christians believe that there's only one God, right? Uh, that he made all that exists, that he created and sustains life. Christians believe that mankind is his most cherished creation. Unfortunately, we believe that man is fallen, so something happened to man. And what God did in response to that is that God took the penalty for sin upon himself to redeem man through Christ. Okay. Then Christians believe that redeemed man, the born-again man, the, the Christian, their purpose is to glorify God through transformation to Christ-likeness. And then, finally, one of the foundational beliefs is that God has spoken to mankind through the Bible. Which is how we know a lot of these things that you just mentioned. Exactly. And maybe that should maybe be bumped up near the head of the list. Right. So, those are kind of the foundational viewpoints that answer those questions about who is God, does he exist, who is man, why is he here, what seems to be wrong with man, and that's what Christianity answers in these with these theological answers. Yeah, uh, I was just thinking while you were reading through that list that uh, there's there's a lot of commentators in the media that often um, miss a couple of these foundational beliefs that you just stated, and then they say, well, Christianity doesn't make sense. Uh, To give you an example, they'll say that, okay, if God created us, um, then why is the world so messed up? And if God is perfect, then how come the world isn't perfect and, you know, everything works yeah. perfectly well? Well, you know, the Bible explains that, that God did create the world perfect, and he looked at it and said that it was very good, but the fall of man kind of altered things. We decided to rebel against God at one point, and there were certain consequences of that rebellion that has uh for lack of a better word has spoiled God's original creation so that it's not not quite what he originally created it as and that's yes. why we see evidence of beauty and perfection in the world but we also see uh ways in which uh there's a lot of imperfection and uh, futility in the world right yeah i couldn't have said it better that is really a good analysis and you know there are you know, wrong ways of looking at things. And if you don't really understand what the Christian view is, then you're not really going to see how it makes much sense. Right. But when you get it all together, uh, it, it really does. It is very cohesive, very logical, um, very well thought through, let's put it that way. Right. Uh, very consistent. You know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so, a lot of these things that I just mentioned, if we, if God hadn't had the Bible written for us, we wouldn't instinctively know these things. We couldn't just, you know, look at nature or whatever and figure these things out. That's so right. So he had the Bible written can for us. figure out a lot by looking at nature such that, you know, you can figure out that God does exist. Right. You can figure out a little bit about him. But yeah, a lot of things you, you wouldn't know, such as that issue of, you know, how come it is that things are so messed up. Right. So, yeah, very true. Okay. Uh, how about the nature of God? Let's go into that a little bit. All right. Well, this is where we're going to spend a lot of the time, and probably till the rest of the uh, show, we'll be looking at the nature of God. What is it that biblical Christianity believes about the nature of God? So, first of all, let's just start off with 
that God is self-existent, okay? Right. What does that mean? <laughs> well, mainly it means that he's not dependent, okay? Or he's not what a, a philosophical term would be contingent. This is so, one of many attributes of God that's kind of mind-boggling when you stop to think about it. Yeah, it is, but you know what? It, philosophically, it's completely necessary. Right. If God, you can phil philosophically know that because there are contingent things in the universe, and in fact the universe itself is contingent, you know just by pure logic that there must be something which is self-existent. So the fact that Christianity teaches that God is self-existent is an amazing correlation. You know right away. In other words, if a religion did not teach that God was self-existent, you would know right away that that religion is false. Okay? Yeah, because it where do we work. get this idea of self-existence from being taught biblically? How about Exodus chapter 3, 13 through 14? And we'll be doing a lot of Bible verses today to really flesh out where in the Bible these ideas come from. Right. Uh, of course, you know, there are many, many more than we'll be quoting, but we, I've just picked out one or two sample references for people to follow along with. Right. So, this verse says, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So, and in Hebrew, it's very much like saying, I exist that I exist. Right. So, he is saying he is the one who exists, the one, the self-existent one. Right. And Plato and Aristotle realized that there had to be some prime mover. There had to be something in the universe that was a self-starter. Or an uncaused or, cause. That's right. That is the, the source of all other over. causes. Yeah. So just pure logic and reason leads you to understand that this God exists, and the Bible confirms that, yes, indeed, that is the God that exists. So every, in fact, this is actually an evidence for the existence of God, because everything in the universe is contingent, and it needs an explanation. Right. In, infinite regressions are irrational. And this is something, again, that Plato and Aristotle proved, and we showed it. We've reviewed this in past shows about infinite regressions. They're irrational. Therefore, a prime mover must exist. To me, this is another example of the fact that the Bible was not written by men. People will often say, oh, you know, men wrote the Bible, and that's all it is. It's just a man-written book. But, right. you know, who, who writing a passage like this would think to call God by that kind of a name. Exactly. I, I mean, yeah, you know, I would have said, well, his name, is, his name is Frank, or his name is Harry, or, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah, but, but they had all these great names for gods, you know, back in the the uh, Bronze Age, you know. Right. Moloch, um, you know, all, all these wonderful, um, fearful-sounding names. Right. Uh, and yet, that's not what the Bible does. Baal I and am, Moloch and all those guys. Yeah, but, you know, who would have ever thought that God would say, I am who I am? It's like, holy cow, you know, let me think about this. That's really right. heavy stuff. Yep. All right, second is God is eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. And our reference verse is Psalm 90, verse 2. 
before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay. Third, about the nature of God, God is infinite. Okay, so this means he is unbounded. And 1 Kings 8.27 says, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Right. And uh, again, now, like you said earlier, you know, you hear these things and you think, well, how is that possible? How can anybody not have a beginning or an end? But as you said, philosophically, you're kind of forced to that conclusion because of the rest of the nature of the universe. Yes, exactly. That That's somewhere right. there has to be something or someone that has been there that has always been there. And we don't want to be trapped into the idea that, you know, the, since we only know about physical things here on Earth, that there can't be anything that's not physical. Right. Uh, you know, that would be really, you know, putting the cart before the horse. That's kind of assuming your conclusion. It's very possible that there is something in the universe that's not physical. And in fact, as we mentioned earlier, Plato and Aristotle showed that there has to be something which is not physical, that the physical universe is contingent. It could not have created itself. Right. So whatever God is, he is beyond nature, or what do we call it? We call it supernatural. So we don't have to run away from that. Logic tells us that something supernatural must exist. And so if this supernatural God seems to have supernatural pro uh, powers, well, that's not really a surprise to us. So the Bible tells us that God is also omnipresent, okay? You know, big omni word. There's a lot of omni words here when we talk about <laughs> the nature of God. And this, this one just means that God is everywhere. So actually, Kirk, if you want to read some of these verses, why don't you read, uh, read this verse? Okay. Uh, we have uh, this verse is Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, where it refers to God being omnipresent. It says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depth, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Wonderful, yeah. So God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And God, here's another omni one. God is omnipotent. Okay. All right? Which means he is all-powerful. I'm laughing because when you said that, when I was a kid, I remember hearing that word for the first time, and I thought it was omnipotent. <laughs> yep, right. So, um, yep, omnipotent, all-powerful. Right. And we have a couple of verses for that. Actually, we have one from Matthew 19:26, where Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Right. Now, we have to be careful here, and sometimes critics uh, want to say, oh, yeah, God is all-powerful. He can do anything. So they'll ask this silly question, and I was asked this in college, is if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Right. All right? So uh -huh. did you ever hear that in college? Oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> yeah. So what we say about this is that God can do anything that is logically possible, and does not contradict his own nature. Right. Okay, so if it's logically possible to do, then God can do it. Right. And so this would exclude things like making a round 
a square, or, or rather, I guess the best way to say it is a square circle. Right. Okay, can God make a square circle? Well, since there are no such things as square circles, then, of course, not being able to make a square circle doesn't count against your omnipotence. So, with the same thing as the rock so big that he can't lift it. Well, since there is no rock so big that God can't lift it, that's a logical impossibility. No, God can't make that, but it doesn't count against his omnipotence because it's not possible to do such a thing. I always like the way Josh McDowell puts these kind of questions, because, of course, you know, him being an apologist for Christianity, he gets asked these kind of questions all the time. And his answer to these types of questions is that uh, it is not possible for God to do nonsense. And he says, the question about the rock too big that he can't lift it, that's a nonsense question. And God can't do nonsense. Right. Exactly right. Now, you could turn it around the other way then. Because remember, the, the person is asking you if God can do something nonsensical or illogical. So you can actually turn, it, turn the question around on the person and say, okay, let's grant that God can do the impossible. All right. So he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it. And then what would he do? He would lift it. <laughs> so where's your complaint? Right? <laughs> okay. See, you get right. it? See, uh-huh. if they're going to admit that impossible things are possible, then of course you can say, yes, God can do impossible things, and he does them. Okay. And so then it doesn't count against his omnipotence. So, But even, but the, Bi- gonna, even the Bible itself tells us things like, it is impossible for God to lie. That's right, and okay. that's, where, that's why we say that it, if it doesn't contradict his own nature, because right. God doesn't do anything evil. The Bible also says that God cannot contradict himself. So really, when you're asking these nonsense questions, you're asking God to contradict himself, and the Bible makes it clear that that he cannot do. Right. But that doesn't make him less powerful, because he can't do nonsensical things. That's right. That's right. All right, so the sixth item, then, about the nature of God is that God is omniscient. All right? Another omni-word. Right. This one means all-knowing. God is all-knowing. We got a lot of ten dollar words in this uh, radio yeah, program we do. today. We're we're raising the bar for our listeners, <laughs> so stay with us. Okay, the verse uh, that backs this idea up is in First John uh, chapter three, verse twenty in the New Testament, where it says, "If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything." Yes. So very clear there. God knows everything. And then this also means that God knows the future. There's a popular misapplication of biblical doctrine that has become in some churches that God doesn't know the future. I believe this is called open theology. Okay. Uh, It is really a mistaken view. The Bible does say that God knows the future, and this is the basis for all the predictions that he's made and some of the many predictions that occurred hundreds of years later that we've talked about on the show in the past. Right, the prophecies in the Bible that have come true. Absolutely. Right. So let's remind people that you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Yes, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking today about the... Biblical religion, biblical theology, the nature of God, and how that is a foundation for the entire Christian worldview. And we'll be looking at what the Christian worldview is in future shows. Okay. 
So number seven then is God is immutable, all right? Now, what does that mean? That means unchangeable. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says. That is correct. And also in the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 17, there's a verse which says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Very good. How about Hebrews 13? Hebrews 13, where it says, yet I just mentioned that, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Absolutely. He will never change. Very good. And it makes sense that if he's perfect and complete and not dependent on anything, he would have no need to change. That's right. He doesn't need to grow. He doesn't need to learn because he already knows everything. <laughs> right, right. He's perfect. So he, he's the sunum bonum. He is already the perfection of all virtues. Ooh, that was a $20 word. <laughs> yeah, that's that Latin. We're getting into Latin now. <laughs> I tell you, be careful. <laughs> all right. Number eight, God is sovereign. God is the supreme ruler. He's in charge. Give us that verse. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 to 11 in the Old Testament. It says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far-off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. Isn't that a great verse? Yep. You know what that means? This means God wins in the end. It means if God says something, you can take it to the bank. (laughs) That's right. Something's going to happen. He wants something to happen. It's going to happen. Right. So he's like the, uh, the master chess player. And you look at the board and you think, wow, he's going to lose. Nope. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yep. He wins. He checkmates every time. <laughs> That's right. He might do a queen sacrifice, or in this case, a son sacrifice, and so it looks like he's losing. Oh, that's an interesting analogy. Yeah, exactly. Sacrifice your son, win the game. Yep. Very good. I like that. I'll have to remember that. Yeah, in case anybody wants chess analogies for (laughs) church sermons. Now we'll have to see how we can work this out in a game of checkers. (laughs) (laughs) For the more simple-minded among us like me. Yeah, there you go. Or or the, uh, well, I don't think so, but uh, I I think there's crowning in, in... checkers, so we could work something in on there. Right. (laughs) All right, number nine in the nature of God is that God is holy, all right? God is sinless. He is absolutely perfect. Wow. Yeah. And uh, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2 in the Old Testament, we have a verse which says, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right. And that's where, again, I mentioned that Latin term, summum bonum. God is the summum, summum bonum. He is the best of all things. Hmm. You know, he, every virtue that you can think of is perfected in God. He is holy. He is, you know, the perfect being. And this is an interesting thought that I like to help people think about. Is humility a virtue? I would say so. Okay. If God is the summum bonum, if he is the perfect representation of every virtue, 
then that means that God is perfectly humble. Okay. Well, what does the Bible say about God's humility? Is God humble? Well, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus Christ to answer that Absolutely. question. Absolutely. That's right. Look at the life and look at the death of Christ. Yep. God the Son on a cross, dying, people beating him and spitting on him. And what did he say? Father, forgive, forgive them. them. Yep. Yeah, forgive them. He could have knocked them. them all over with a lightning bolt, but he didn't do that. <laughs> so, so we see, now we know. And do you realize that if that had not happened, we would not really know how humble God is? I was going to say, there's, I don't think there's really a good example of that quality of God in the Old Testament. You really have to look at Jesus in the New Testament to really see that. He really uh, demonstrated some, some of his qualities, like humility, that he wasn't able to right, show to us happens, in the Old Testament. That's right, because what happens if you say you're humble? Well, you, guess what? You're not humble anymore. Right. Hey, Kirk, look at me. I am so humble. Man, you wouldn't believe how humble I am. Look how great I am. I'm humble. <laughs> right. That's the only way you can show that, it, where you can reveal that is by showing it. And that's exactly what God did. Yes, and that reminds me of some people who say that the Old and the New Testament speak of two different gods, that there's a very... Uh, arrogant, vengeful God in the Old Testament, but there's a very meek and mild God in the New Testament. And they say, well, how can that be? Well, actually, um, like I just said, uh, this is God demonstrating his different qualities, whereas we weren't able to see some of his qualities in the Old Testament. When he became a man in the New Testament, we were able to see those other qualities. That doesn't That's mean right. that those qualities contradict each other. Right. He's both perfectly righteous, perfectly just, but he's also perfectly loving and perfectly humble. Right. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this actually solves an old riddle of the philosophers. Plato, in one of his dialogues, talked about the Euthyphro dilemma, okay? And it was, you know, Plato thought a lot about God, and one of the things he realized is that there is this tension between God and morals, or God and virtues. So if morals come from God then doesn't it appear that they're arbitrary? I mean, God makes them up. God determines what is right and wrong. So if God determines what is right and wrong, then right and wrong is kind of arbitrary. Right. Right? And so that seems to be a problem, because then God could have said that murder is right, murder is good, right? Instead of just, it just happened that he said that murder is bad. Right. Almost but like he flipped if, a coin. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And But then Plato also noticed the opposite. Well, let's say that uh, virtue is kind of at a higher level than God is. So God said that murder was wrong because of a higher order, a higher law, that murder really is wrong in this great scheme of things. Well, then in a sense, then God is less than the moral order. There must be something somehow, greater than God, God that set that standard. obey that moral rule. Right. So this was in his dialogue called Euthyphro, so that's why it's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. And 
other religions that do not have the same God are unable to solve this dilemma. And with Christianity, because we now realize that God is the summum bonum, God is holy, he splits that dilemma in half because what we, it turns out is that while the moral order is not above God, but it's also not arbitrary, it is who God is. Right. God is the moral order. Right. And so God says that murder is wrong because that's his nature. It's not a law above him, and it's not an arbitrary rule. He's actually telling us what he is like. Right. He doesn't murder. He is he the standard. Lie. Yeah, he is the standard himself. Exactly. The standard so, isn't something again, outside of him that he made up. Right. Again, another philosophical evidence that the Christian God is the true God, something that uh, man, man-made religions simply don't recognize. Right. And that reminds me, too, of the uh, verse in the New Testament where Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life. It's like, how could he say that? It's because of this quality of him being perfect that he can say, I don't know the truth as something outside of myself. I am the truth. Right. Very good. If Very you want to know what truth is, look at me and you will see it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, number 10 on the nature of God, God is righteous and just. Yep. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, verse 4, it says, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Excellent. All right, let's jump right along. God is faithful. Okay. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Yeah, that is a great verse. I, I want to pause on this one because this really brings out what the meaning of faith is. So many times we believe what the atheist says or the secular person says faith is. They claim that faith is blind, but we know that faith is a deep abiding trust in God. And one way of looking at it is the idea of faithfulness and loyalty. God is the most loyal being that there is. He is the summum bonum. He is the perfection of all virtues, and God is totally loyal to us. He will never leave you or forsake you. There is no one more loyal than God is to you. So when God says to you, have faith in me, he's asking you to be faithful to him, to be loyal to him. To trust so, him. So that is what true believing faith is. It's being loyal to God. Mm-hmm. All right. God, uh, number 12, God is love. Of course, most people have heard this one in one form yeah, or another. Yeah, I, I hope people do know this. <laughs> okay, and we have a verse here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 8 to 10 that says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And it goes on to say, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Isn't that wonderful? The gospel message right there. Right. And it comes from a loving God. And that you do have in the Old Testament. It does say, the Old Testament does say that God is a God of love. Yes. God is a God of mercy so and a God of forgiveness. Yes. If you look close, the same God really is in, in both Testaments. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. And it appears from all the records that though he has often rebuked us and condemned us, he has never regarded us with contempt. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. Hmm. Isn't that great? That is so fabulous to think about how God does rebuke us and he does many times condemn us, but he never treats us with contempt. Right. And another point to bring out is that true love never contradicts the other characteristics of God. And that's one of the things that you brought out earlier. Um, You know, there isn't a contradiction between these uh, different aspects of God. Right. Well, do we have time for the last? I think we're running out of time here. We have less than a minute. You want to remind uh, our listeners about uh, Back to Church Sunday again before we leave? All right, let's do that. This coming Sunday, Back to Church Sunday, so find a local church. If you live in the Hamilton area, you can come to Victory Bible Church. We would love to have you. And in the Linwood Summers Point Northfield area, we would love to have you at Linwood Community Church on Shore Road in Linwood. Okay, well, Josh tells me that the old clock on the wall says that's about all the time we have for today. So I'll just remind you to join us again next week. And remember, the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.